millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Veteran number eight, kicked high, it's gone backwards, and look at Kirtley, Aronson, Aronson's got space in front of him, and he will score for South Africa, against the run of play, the Springboks have their first try of the night. So, welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport podcast, and uh, with me, I'm Mike Finch, of course, for those of you who have been listening to this podcast for the five seasons we'll be doing, but on the other side of my screen at the moment is Professor Ross Tucker, who is coming to us live from Paris, Paris, um, where yeah. he's been pretty much for the last couple of weeks um, at the World Cup Rugby, and we thought we'd kind of have a bit of a look at some of the stuff around the World Cup Rugby, some of the breaking news that's happening, which we're going to talk to you about first this morning, and then uh, some of the stats that we've seen, the vibe around the World Cup Rugby, and uh, we're just a couple of days, in fact, a day away from the semi-finals as we do this podcast, and we'll obviously wrap the World Cup at the end of the final, which is uh, just on just over 10 days' time from now. So lots to talk about in terms of rugby, and I'm sure for those of you that have been following the the world cup rugby in, in france it's it's been an exciting time for those who've lost their teams uh, so far obviously the excitement is a little less but for those of us like south africa who have got uh, players and teams in the semi-finals obviously lots to look forward to and uh, lots of nail biting um which we'll have to put up with over the last uh, next couple of days as we did south africa in particular um last week um winning that quarterfinal match um and uh moving through to that uh to the semi-finals and that was a nerve-wracking thing but anyway let's kick off with uh, some news i know ross that you were at a medical conference in bordeaux a couple of days ago and some big announcements um around uh some of the stuff they're doing around player safety yeah and i'd hinted at this uh, a couple of times on this podcast to try and like whet some people's appetites and then eventually sean engel broke the story uh, probably about a week and a half ago now the monday week back mm. sean engel of course of the guardian yeah which is that World Rugby will now mandate the instrumented mouth guards as part of the head injury assessment process. So not mandated to play, but mandated in order to use that head injury assessment process. And those, those instrument mouth guards have a little device in them that measures head acceleration. And what we're going to do is build head acceleration into the criteria that cause a player to be taken off field for a screen. Um so there's a few different parts to that. Obviously, there's you have to understand how the screen works, and then you can understand how we're going to try and improve the quality of the screen and the thoroughness of the screen by using head acceleration. So I think it's really novel and innovative. We we started this like three years ago, and honestly, among our team, it's the thing that's the most exciting because I think it's the biggest change that's been made to how head injuries are managed. And it's far from perfect. I'll be the first to admit that, and I reckon... 
four years from now, we might look back and say that where we started compared to where we go, I hope, is probably quite rudimentary. But we have to start somewhere. And I think mm. it's actually quite a big leap, you know. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. And we, we've got a lot of work to do to make it work well. But, yeah, I, I'm really, really excited by it. So let's, for those of you who haven't listened, maybe this is your first episode of the Science of Sport podcast. Rostis, when you talk about we, you're talking about your role um, with World Rugby and, uh, and and what you do there. Just just give us a brief summation as to why you say we. Yeah, so since 2015, I've been working as a cons- research consultant to World Rugby in the Player Welfare and Rugby Services Department. And so that's the division within World Rugby that deals with injuries and concussion management, the big priority and all the, it used to be called technical services because there's all the technical stuff. It includes anti-doping, for instance. I'm not involved so much there, but more on the concussion management and prevention and treatment side of things. And so there's a team of us now. When I started, it was the chief medical officer and, and me. And now there are half a dozen people, including video analysts, number of different consultants from outside who have expertise in specific areas, biomechanics, IT, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, so that's that's the that's the crew. Um and so when I say we, I, I mean world rugby in this context, yeah. So when you say player welfare, I mean we've had this debate and it's interesting just to kind of specify what what, what your role is. Is it just player welfare with the idea of consulting with other parts of world rugby that then decide, okay, you, you've got a change that you would like to put forward in terms of player welfare, as you talked about in terms of the mouth guards. But then does a, a bigger committee then say, right, okay, that's that's great for player welfare, but we need to consider other factors. Or do you guys make a decision that then gets put forward to a board? In other words, how does the process work in terms of changing rugby for the better of the players? Yeah, and sometimes I suppose depending on the eye of the beholder for the worst worsening of the game. <laughs> some, people, some people would say that. Um so there are some there are some things in the sport that are almost non-negotiable. Like, you know, when I started in 2015, we were in the relatively early days of concussion management before that the big thing was spinal injuries and catastrophic injuries which obviously are fortunately rare but when they happen they are literally life-changing or life-ending even worse Mm. so the stuff like that if you if you discovered for instance tomorrow that there's a certain thing players are doing that increases the risk of a catastrophic injury you would have to instantly stop it from happening Mm. and it's quite easy where it gets trickier is now in the concussion discussion, and it's actually evolved even away from concussion, which is where the mouth guards become particularly important, is that it's now no longer thought that it's the it's that one big impact that causes a clinical outcome, as in I'm knocked out, I'm concussed now. Now the thinking is that what the sport really needs to address are those uh, cumulative head impacts that don't quite get to that concussion threshold. So the 10 impacts you have that that are every single week you play in a match and which potentially can add up over time because the thinking is a few few things around that one is that the, as you have those over the course of a season your risk of a concussion goes up because the cumulative load lowers the threshold if that makes sense so mm. by the time you experience your 80th hit in two months maybe you're more likely to be concussed by it than if it was the first time you'd experienced that same impact so there's that there's that and then also there's this long-term consequence argument. And when we went to Boston earlier this year, the World Rugby has a concussion working group that went to Boston to meet with a number of experts in this area of long-term health and neurological um, conditions. They 
pretty much unanimously said that you've got to manage head impacts because head impacts seem to be implicated in the long-term consequences. So that's where it creates a dilemma, right? Because how do you play the sport without head impacts? And so Mm -hmm. you can't, you can't now approach this risk thing as a binary, you know, you, you either have head impacts or you have rugby. They don't, those things don't exist. So what the sport has to do is say, right, what's the, what's the reasonable reduction in head impact number and intensity that we need to aspire to, but without changing the game too much. That second part's the bit that people forget often, like at the beginning of the year, they, the, the world rugby made this recommendation to lower the height of the tackle in the community game. And then even in advance of that, a few unions had done it. The French did it back in 2018, 19, uh, New Zealand did it at the end of 2022 and then at the beginning there, England did it, but they didn't consult widely enough. And they got enormous blowback from people saying, leave the sport alone. So there are definitely tensions there where on the one side you say, okay, we've got to leave the sport alone. But on the other side, there have to be certain changes made. So that's where, that, that's where the tension you talk about comes in. Mm-hmm. So for example, at the World Cup, people will say, and I saw this on South African television, pundits will say, these cards are ruining the game. Like just let the players play like head impacts happen. Okay, fine. But at what point do we have to draw some kind of line? So there's, there's definitely some tension there, but, but because of the, I think there's a moral responsibility that the sport has to protect its players. How far that goes is maybe the philosophical question. It's one of, I've said it before on the podcast, it's a question of calibration, right? Like how far Mm. do you want to turn the volume up or down? How far do you want to reduce head impacts? Because there are consequences to doing it. There's a trade-off. And then there's also a legal obligation. Because like, as you know, the sport is facing lawsuits, hundreds of them, from players who said that the sport didn't do enough in the past. And it would be simplistic, I think, and a little bit dismissive of people who say, oh, it's just because you're being sued, you have to act. I, I do think there's legitimately medical, moral, financial reasons to try and act. But there is. I mean, it'd be silly to not accept that there's this legal pressure on the sport to do it as well so since i joined the the every every exco that's executive council and every council and every board meeting starts with the player welfare section mm-hmm. and i go to some of those not all but the chief medical officer goes to all of them and he starts that meeting talking about where we are in player welfare so the sport is really i, I think sincere in its commitment to make player welfare quite a high priority to the, and again, as I say, to the detriment sometimes of the sport in some people's eyes, but I think that it's necessary. Well, what's, where would you, I mean, now that you're working and have been working with World Rugby for some time, would you say it is, it sounds like it's the, the amount of resources being put into this area means it is probably, if not the highest, certainly second or third most important priority for World Rugby. I mean, is it, is it, is it that high up in the hierarchy of, of needs in terms of World Rugby? Yeah, I think so. Like strategically, yes. I, I don't know about financially. I mean, I don't I don't know how much World Rugby spends to make a World Cup happen, probably in the mm-hmm. hundreds of millions, which it has to, right? That's the core business. So it'd be unfair to compare this to that. But I I think the number of people who are involved, and not just World Rugby, eh? Like remember, there are now universities that are have employed people in capacities specifically to study rugby injury as well. So like the if you think about the ecosystem as opposed to just what World Rugby spends, the ecosystem around player welfare is enormous. And that's why I'll be honest, sometimes it's 
little bit like annoying, irritating to see people on Twitter saying, you know, the sport doesn't care and it pays lip service. Because when I talk about the sport, I talk collectively about it. There are dozens, if not hundreds of people who are extremely committed to trying to study injury, injury prevention, injury management, concussion, long-term health. And everyone's doing it because they care. It's not like some of them are just doing it because they're mercenaries. There's not really much money in studying injury. You'd rather do other things. But 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 to come back to world rugby, like our investment in concussion especially is huge. And this mouth guard thing is no different. That's a millions of pounds in invest a year investment into supporting and supplying these mouth guards to professional players moving forward. Uh, doing the research over the last three years has easily gone into the seven figures, millions, best pounds as well. So I think the the commitment is enormous. Everyone who does it, I I think, are sincere. Like there's tremendous integrity in the people who do it. So, yeah, I I, I think that it's. Uh, I think that when they say player wealth is the number one priority, I think that's legitimate. But obviously, there's a business behind it as well, right? Yeah. So yeah, for sure. One 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 example is, okay, if you want to reduce the number of concussions, play less rugby. Cool. I mean, that's obvious, right? Mm. If I play. 28 matches a year compared to 15 matches a year. Obviously, 15 is going to do you know, it's better for you. But the mm. players don't want that either. Because if they don't play, they don't get paid. Mm. If the season is shortened and the competitions are made smaller, then the squad sizes are reduced. And that means that instead of there being 300 players who are sustained by the sport, there are 180. They don't want that because 120 people will have to find new jobs. Mm -hmm. obviously there's a balance that has to be found between the commercial imperatives to keep the, the sport going and the player welfare ones and so it's silly i think to stand on the outside of it and say just play less it's, it's not a solution it's a theoretical solution to a real world problem that that ignores and neglects to accept that actually there are there are other imperatives and the players themselves want to play mm. Yeah. So. so let's let's get into. I'm I'm quite fascinated to hear some of the the detail around this mouth guard because it's an interesting one. Is it? Is there any precedence for this anywhere else and for any other sport? Basically, putting accelerometers into mouth guards, or is World Rugby the pioneer in terms of this? In some respects, it is. Yes. So the the mouth guard concept, not the mouth guard, the accelerometer concept, and the idea of measuring head accelerations that's been around for a long time and. There are papers that are now 10 years old talking about the quest for the concussion threshold. You know, can, can we find a line above which a concussion occurs? You know, a line for head accelerations. Are you guaranteed to be concussed? No. The simple answer to that is no. There's, no, there's never going to be a threshold because it depends on the direction of the impact. It depends on whether it's the first or the 15th impact of the match. It depends on whether you saw the impact coming and could your neck brace and prepare your head for that impact. It probably varies significantly from one individual to the next. So there's so many different things. So so, so no, there's no threshold, but to answer your question, there, there have been accelerometers and sensors placed in helmets in American football. There was one that was a little patch that used to stick on to the skin behind the ear. It was allegedly did the same thing. And so people have been exploring these concepts for a while. The problem with those is that the helmet moves on the head. So you can be, it's the same with a bike helmet. Sometimes you can, you can, your helmet will fall off in a crash and your head's not impacted. You know what I mean? So the helmet yeah. accelerates more than the head does. And it's the same with those little patches because the, 
the skin moves on top of the skull. So what the mouth guard offers is an opportunity to get a better fit and a better coupling to the tooth. And if you've got that rigid tooth system, now you can start to actually try and infer a little bit better, not perfectly, but better what's happening in the brain. So the mouth guards opened up opportunities for valid, accurate measurements that the other senses in the past maybe didn't do. And that's mm. why it became, so like, there's no doubt this is now the gold standard. And I know that in the NFL, for instance, they still use the helmets because that way everyone will use them. Whereas the mouth guard, some people choose not to. So in that respect, not entirely novel, but where, where, where world rugby is novel and it is innovative is, is making it part of the clinical process. No one's ever done that before. And that's what was announced a couple of weeks back is we will be trying to do that. So in other words, Somebody, and as you say, just just remind us about who's going to wear and who's going to be mandated to wear these mouth guards. Mm, so it's all elite players who play in what World Rugby classifies as the premier elite competition. So that means the international matches like World Cups, Six Nations, Rugby Championships, uh, and all other internationals. Then your elite club competitions. So premiership in England, top 14 in France, the URC that we play in in South Africa, uh AP 15th for the women in New Zealand it'll be their Farrah Palmer Cup moving forward for the women so all the top level competitions that make use of our head injury assessment protocol will have the mandating of mouth guards in order to use the protocol and and, and again it's not mandated like it, you you can still play without a mouth guard but if you don't have a mouth guard you can't access that part of the head injury assessment where you get the substitution for a screen yeah. What after a head impact, you, you'll be treated as a recognize and remove instead. Okay, so just explain that a bit further. So if you if you decide because there are players who don't wear mouth guards, uh, as we know, they they they're involved in a potential um, collision head to head or whatever. If they're not wearing it, they just get assessed like they do now. In other words, they're sent off for an HIA, which is a um, head impact assessment, and then they are then sent back or kept based on that HIA report. When is that what happens to them first? And then, and, and then if you do have the uh, the um, mouth guard, what role does that play in that process? Well, so the only the only player who will be able to now go off for that assessment is the one wearing a mouth guard. If they're not right. wearing a mouth guard and you see that head impact with a potential to cause concussion, then it's a recognize and remove case. They'll be immediately and permanently removed. No substitution. Uh, so they don't even go for an HIA. They just said, okay, you, we think you're in danger. You're off. Yeah, the all-field screen, what you're calling the HIA right. there, that's the first phase of the HIA. That's only available to players with the mouth guard. Ah. Because we have to, you know, we tried for three years to get these mouth guards into the game. And the coaches have, there's an apathy around the coaches and the player group. Unless you mandate it, you won't get buy-in. Mm. And mm. so you need to do something. Otherwise, you're going to be in a situation, genuinely, in like four or five years' time, You've got technology that can actually measure head acceleration events. And we need to measure those for reasons I'm sure we'll get into shortly. But if you then have mm. to stand up in front of someone and say, well, only 58% of players have used it, that's a failure of the sport's responsibility or duty of care. Mm. So you have to say, well, you know what? It's in everyone's best interest that players must wear this device. How are we going to get players to wear this device? Well, the answer is that there have to be certain conditions attached to not wearing it or wearing it, you know, vice versa. Right. The answer was we felt that in order, it's, so it's not because it's not part of the head injury assessment process. You know, that, that, that HIA, for listeners who don't know, the, let's say you're watching a game now, tomorrow night, the box against England. 
and you see a, a head impact, a significant head impact, and the player looks a little bit unsteady. You think, geez, maybe that's a concussion. We better get a look at this player. That player comes off, and there's now 12 minutes available to test them. And they go off and they do a screen, and you did it. It's symptoms, cognitive tests, memory, balance, you know, that sort of stuff. You, you yeah, mm. balancing on one leg and both legs with your eyes closed and so on. Um, if a player were to, for instance, say, you know what, I'm not going to do the balance test, what would you say? You would say, well, if you're not going to do the balance test, you can't do any of it. Yeah. And that's kind of the logic here with the mouth guards is we're saying, well, the mouth guard is not part of that process. We're going to measure the head acceleration that caused you to come off. And if you don't have that data, then you're not fully compliant with the process. Therefore, you don't get the process and you'll be treated as a as an immediate and permanent removal. They call it recognize and remove. So it's a more, it's actually a more conservative way of managing concussion to say that any hint of a head impact. Last uh, last weekend, Marcus Smith, the England fullback against Fiji, took a fairly hefty blow on the head. He went off the field, had his screen, he passed that screen, came back on, subsequently was confirmed to be concussed. Now, that's obviously not a good situation. What we're saying now is that if Marcus Smith is not wearing a mouth guard, he's going straight off. There's no screen and no possibility to come back. So it's actually, in some ways, a more conservative approach than it would have been. But there's always this balance. Like if you if you did that too often, no player would ever tell you that it had a head knock because they never want to go off the field. So the, the temporary substitution kind of enabled more concussions to be identified because it meant that players weren't harshly, quote unquote, punished for being impacted on the head. You know, they'd go off mm-hmm. thinking, okay, let, and, and it helps the doctor so much because now he's got 10 minutes in, in the quiet of a dressing room a medical room to do an assessment so yeah that 10 minute substitution was really important and we've made the mouth guard part of that so in other words the guy goes into that so he's got the mouth guard he goes into an hi hia do they then download the mouth guard the the the, the data from the mouth guard while they do that and then look at the accelerations that happened you know at the time and then count that as part of the the hia they can do that, but it's not going to be material to the to the outcome. And this is actually a really important process. Is that that process by which a player is screened, the symptoms, the balance, the cognitive, the mouth guard doesn't change that. Once that's happening, it happens the way that it always has. And the reason for that is again, there is no head acceleration that tells you this player is concussed. They are not predictive of concussions, mm-hmm. and they are not diagnostic. So you can't look at a player and say oh, wow, this guy's just had a 93G, 6,000 radians per second squared uh, impact. He must be injured. It doesn't, unfortunately, work like that. I hope one day that we can get better at it to make it maybe more likely to get to that point. But at the moment, you can't do it. The predictive value of head acceleration for an injury is still too low. So what we're doing is we're saying that we're going to get players into the screen based on the head acceleration not use the head acceleration as part of the screen. Does that make sense? Yeah. So now what's happening is you're watching the game. There's a big head impact. The player's wearing a mouth guard. Within normally seconds, but sometimes minutes, because it's a Bluetooth connection, so it depends on connectivity and so on, that impact will be uploaded to the cloud, and the medical doctor will then receive an alert if it is excessively high. And we've we've set lines for now. So in the men's game, it's four thousand radians rads per second squared, and seventy Gs. So let's say there's an impact now at seventy eight Gs, and five thousand rads per second squared. 
the medical doctor will get an alert on his or her iPad that says number 13 green has just had a head impact that needs to be assessed. Then 13 green will be called off the field and have the normal HIA that's always been used in the sport. Does that make sense, the difference? Are they continually monitoring that or, or only yes. when the players? Okay, so yeah. all the players on the field are being monitored continually and suddenly there's a spike. Hey, number 14, we need to yes. check you out. Exactly. Right. So so okay. the paradigm shift here, and I, when I posted on Twitter, like the usual crowd of geniuses got involved. The paradigm shift here is, is you're not using the head acceleration as part of the diagnostic process. You're actually using it as a flag, as an identifier to say, Let's have a look at that player because that player mm. has just experienced a really hefty head acceleration. They haven't shown, this is the key put, they haven't shown signs of it because if they had, they'd have come off anyway, right? Yeah. yeah. If you go into a tackle and you get a bang on the head and you get up and you're a little unsteady and you're holding your head and you can see it, that's the situation the medical doctor should be saying, come off, let's have a look at you because you've shown mm. a clinical outcome, a sign, a behavior, some behavior change, that says that you've had a head impact that might be concussion. Get off the field, let's have a screen. What, what we think happens quite a lot, actually, is that you have those impacts without any obvious indicators. Now, that's for one of three reasons. One is sometimes the presentation of a concussion is legitimately delayed. You'll have a blow, and only 10 minutes later do you start to feel nauseous or dizzy or headaches and so on. Right? The other one is that sometimes the player hides it. Because they know that if they don't hide it, they're going to come off. They, this is what yeah. players do. They live for the moment, not for the future. And we've seen that in games when the players do get exactly. sent for HI, and they're they're quite grumpy about it. They're like, oh, "Do I really have to do this?" So right, there, exactly. yeah, there is that there is that uh, reticence. There was a particularly dramatic one about three weeks ago in the NFL, where the independent observer, the, they've got a concussion specialist, said to one of the players, "You've got to come off." And the, the player was actually just on the borderline of fighting the guy. Yeah. And he subsequently apologized. He said, yeah, no, in the heat of the moment, I don't know what's best for me. And that's the problem. So the player will take a blow and he'll sort of stay down for one or two seconds, walk it off, keep playing. But that's a significant head impact that that player's just experienced. It is, I believe it is necessary to look at that player, not to, not to rule him out, not to say you're concussed. No, you don't want to do that because then you're overreaching what the head acceleration and the mouth guard can do for you. But you mm -hmm. want to say, listen, let's get you off. Let's just have a look. And maybe we'll find something there, actually, that means you should have stayed off. Because So that, that's the so it's almost like they make a business decision to stay on the mm -hmm. field. And then the third one is sometimes the guy get hit him, head impact in a tackle. He goes down. All of a sudden, there's a pile of bodies. No one can see that he's uh, he or she is injured, right? So then five seconds later, gets up out of this pile of bodies and carries mm. on that's a concussion that you've now no longer you, you've failed, you've lost the ability to pick up and so what we're yeah. hoping is that mouth guards don't diagnose concussions but they they put more people into the diagnostic process so right. that you're screened when it happened you're screened two hours after the game and then you're screened two days after the game again so that by the time if you play on a Saturday night, by Tuesday afternoon, we've had three really good opportunities to look at you in front of a doctor and say, okay, you know what? You had this big impact, but you're okay, or you're not. And so that's that's what we're using it for. It's like the, the mouth guard sends up a flare, and then right. you react yeah. to the flare. That's a good analogy, yeah. Yeah. So mm. 
so, so that the advance in the tech that allowed this to happen is the company that we're working with on this primarily um, for now is Prevent. It's a company from the USA, Minneapolis. They've developed software that allows the mouthguard to communicate to an app, and then the app uploads it to a cloud, and then the, the cloud sends a message to the the doctor, the master doctor's iPad. And so that's how we we anticipated working. And so, yeah, that, the, that's the key. Is if you take one thing from this podcast, is that the the mouthguard is sending up a flare in some head impacts that then say, let's get that player off, have a look at her or him. And then we can make a clinical decision based on that. It's not meant to replace what's already in place. It's meant to add to it. Because we believe that we are missing a lot of potentially harmful or injurious head impacts at the moment. And the mouth guard is going to help us catch many of those. Not all, but many. So the question is, I mean, you probably alluded to it quite nicely there. How do you, first of all, decide on yeah. when it is a high impact and what research was done around that. And then when you're looking at that, there's obviously going to be criticism if a lot of people come off the field based on the, the res- uh, based on what's coming back in terms of these mouth guards. If you suddenly have five players off the field because this thing is reading these impacts and people are saying, well, this is ruining the game. How, is it a conservative number that you put to that or is it a more aggressive number that you put to that? In other words, do you want to catch lots of fish or do you want to catch less so? <laughs> it's a difficult question. No, it's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the best question to ask. It's the most important question. And the answer is you have to be conservative within the constraints of the existing medical infrastructure, one. You have to be conservative within the constraints of what the stakeholders will allow you to do. To mm. and then you have to be as aggressive as possible clinically. So you're actually juggling different tensions there. So the first one is the medical infrastructure. You've got at every game, you've got an independent match day doctor. At World Cup, you've also got a video match day doctor whose only job is to look at video and, and also the he'll get the um angelic. But you don't have five doctors available and each team's only got one. So if mm. you if we, if one is to then make the mistake of setting those thresholds too low. You know, like let's say everyone who exceeds 50 or 2,000 rates per second, and these numbers won't mean anything to you yet, but I'm getting there, comes off for a screen. I mean, you basically might as well create a revolving door out of the medical doctor's office because <laughs> yes. you're going to have you're going to have one every seven to ten minutes. Rolling substitutions. Yeah, exactly. It's gonna be it's gonna be like an in It's gonna be like a fast food joint in that medical room. <laughs> right? Take a number, and so you have you have them. You'll have the players lined up on the thing they're taking. There'll the be number. nobody on the field, yeah, to play the game. <laughs> so that, that would be in, like, and, and you can argue, this is another example where some people say, oh, every impact above 60 should come off. But you say, hang mm. on a moment, we've got, we've got data now, and this is where it comes from, from 78,000 impacts over the course of the last couple of years in professional rugby alone. That's in matches. We've got in excess of 200,000 head impacts in training, matches, community, elite. But in match wow. in elite matches, we've got almost 80,000. And we know that per match above, let's call it uh, 60 Gs, if you if you set that threshold at 60 Gs, you're going to get like 10 a game. Yeah. You know, there's 30 players for 80 minutes. There's, there's a lot of people exposed to head impact in, uh, uh, risk, if you want to call it that. So if you set mm. that bar too low, you, as I say, you're just going to overwhelm your medical infrastructure. The other consequence of that is now you'd be pulling players off and a lot of the time, there'd be actually no clinical indication that anything's wrong with them. 
they'd go off, they'd do that test, they'd come back on. Within weeks, they would start to get pissed off because yeah. it's disruptive to them and they're being yanked off the field and they don't understand why. And the coaches will start rejecting it. And then the players will stop wearing the mouth guards. They'll say, I'll take my chances. And so you would very easily lose them. So it's quite a delicate decision actually to make. It's like how many can you tolerate in medically? How many will be accepted by the stakeholders? And so what we eventually said is we know we know that in the sport at the moment, there's on average about four head injury removals every five matches. That's That's kind of like the global average. We said, okay, a lot of those would already be mouth guard triggered head accelerations as well because they're pretty hefty. But if we aim for one additional mouth guard indicated removal per match, and there's an overlap of say half, half, then we would be adding one every two matches to the cohort. And we think that that's doable. So mm. what, does that make sense? Yeah. But we yeah. said basically, what's the head acceleration magnitude that would cause one every game? Okay, so then we say, let's look at those 80,000 head accelerations, linear acceleration, that's the Gs, 70, 80 Gs, and then rotational accelerations, the rads per second squared. So that's going to be 3,000, is it 5,000, whatever. And we basically did this exercise on that data, and we determined that for men, one per match equates to 70 Gs and 4,000 radians per second squared. So that's the threshold. So if you have an impact at 60 and 3,300, no flag comes up. There's no flare. No. The flare is fired when you get to 4,178 or more. Right. You know, it makes sense, right? Yeah. In women, because the head acceleration numbers are lower, which is in itself really interesting, there's so many other benefits of having this data, by the way. It's not just for this. Uh, the, the threshold is 55 Gs and 4,000 radians per second squared. So once again, we'll say, okay, We've just seen a head acceleration of 61 and 4,500. You, that's the flare. Off you come. Let's have a little look. Now, yeah. a lot of the time, a lot of the time, not, not as many as I'd like it to be, and I would love for this to improve in time, but many times that head impact that triggers the mouth guard also causes behavior changes, mm. which means that they would have been seen anyway. You know, they would have come off because they – either an obvious concussion, the player's lost consciousness or is ataxic, whatever, or it was enough to say, actually, let's have a look at you because it's a potential concussion. And then you'd get confirmation of it in the in the mouth guard data. Make sense? Yeah. 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 So that's, that's the way that it's envisaged to work. And it was done the very first historic case ever of a player who was removed for a head, head assessment because of a mouth guard was last week in a match in Stellenbosch where... Italy's women's side was playing Scotland and there was an incident then. And so that's what we are going to be looking at as of next year when it becomes mandated in the, in the elite game. And do you know what happened there? Did it effectively catch somebody who was concussed uh, as a matter of interest? <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to uh, not answer it directly because it's clinical information. So I'm not supposed right. to, Let's just say that it was the perfect start. <laughs> okay. All right. I get it. So and this is, and the thing is, you know, like, there, and there've been a few since there were, there were three matches in the WXV2. There was one this morning. There were two in the WXV3, three last week as well in the WXV3. This is a women's competition going on in three different locations around the world. One of mm. the bases is South Africa. This morning was the first game being played down in Australia, New, New Zealand, actually. 
uh, and then the other locations, Dubai. And this is going to be the first time ever that it, that it's done. And so far, it looks good. We had five warnings in the first six matches, so we're pretty much bang on in terms of small sample. I know, and mm. and yes, yeah, some some. Let, let me just put it this way: some of the mouth guard alerts would not have been seen without the mouth guard, and they were concussed. Right. So it's it's got promising uh, use so far from what you can see. Yes, so- it does. And but I would I would labor the point, and I'm sorry if I am laboring it. Is we don't want to position the mouth guard as diagnostic for a concussion. Yeah. What it's we're trying to do is we're trying to say it's the flare yeah. that then puts you in front of a doctor, which we which we really think is important because that those thresholds, incidentally, they correspond to the 99.8 percentile of impacts. So so like. It's literally the top 0.2% of all head impacts. Now, if you've had a head impact that large, I think there's good medical justification to say you need to be looked at. It's not Mm. saying you're concussed. It's not saying you're in danger. It's saying that you just maybe should have a little quiet look with a doctor over the course of the next 72 hours. Let's just make sure everything's legit and then we can move on from there. So that's it's, it it's almost it's almost like a separate pair of eyes on the field. You've got people keeping an eye out for this, but this is another tool another pair of eyes correct and and one of the one of the reasons it's so important is we know and i just literally did this analysis last week is in the last four years 18 percent of all concussions aren't picked up in the game they're only picked up after the game the player will come to the doctor back at the hotel on monday morning sometimes and say doc i'm just nauseous like light sensitive i feel dizzy when i stand up too fast like i think there's something wrong and we pick up 18. So it's one in almost one in five, right? Let's call it one in five and a half. If the mouth guard can even elim- identify half of them at the time of the impact, mm. because what's happening there is that place clearly had a big impact in game, but it hasn't been picked up because business decision buried at the bottom of a rack, whatever it is. Let's use the mouth guard as that, as you say, second pair of eyes, maybe get eyes on that player a little bit sooner treat the player a little bit sooner and that's better for everyone. So that's, that's kind of where we want to go with it. And, and then in addition, there's so many other benefits. Once, once you start measuring these, you can quant, you can, you can track cumulative load, you know, is it maybe, maybe someday you discover that the same players are the ones getting all the big hits. Mm. You say, maybe there's some technical, technical thing we need to change in your tackle. Maybe we can identify high-risk players versus low-risk players for head impacts that are large and cumulative. Not even talking concussions now. Let's let's just let's just try and manage head load in the game. And how do you manage the thing if you don't measure it? It's impossible. I mean, it's fairly obvious and fairly logical to suggest that if you had to look at the players most likely to suffer from head injuries, it's probably going to be the forwards as opposed to the backs. But then the backs potentially can get bigger impacts because they're hitting each other at a higher pace. So that's the first, yeah. So exactly. anyway, and so yeah. that's kind of like quite aside from the clinical use of the IMG, we've got this really fascinating data now that shows, as I mentioned, is that what is that what is that what it's called an IMG? IMG, yeah, instrument in yeah. mouth guard, yeah. Okay, instrument in mouth guard. <laughs> instrumented mouth guard, yes. Instrumented mouth guard. Oh, there we go. So many people yeah. say they've got an IMG. We know now what they're talking about. Yeah, and then maybe in the parlance, it'll it'll become like as common as GPS, you know. And this is, by yeah. the way, I think. I think as it becomes mandated, and I think a lot of coaches aren't yet familiar with what it's doing, but some are, um, and I've spoken to some coaches who show them a nameless, but let's just say they're representing one of the teams in a semi-final tomorrow night, um, <laughs> who 
who I think would very, very quickly jump on IMGs as a way to track player load. Because what you're basically getting is the ability to measure exactly how many impacts a player has, because that's what the IMG is picking up. And over the course of weeks, months, seasons, years, you will be able to monitor exactly how many impacts am I putting my players through in training and matches? Do I need to bring it down? Do I need to increase it? And so I think it's going to be as powerful as GPS. And like all the teams are using that at the moment to track distance around and speeds and so on. I reckon MouthGuard's offer like a really significant performance enhancement tool for some coaches. Mm. The smart coach is going to get ahead of this and use it as an opportunity. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if you could establish when a player has taken X amount of hits, therefore it's probably a good idea to take them off because they've 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 got that. And I suppose working out what that is is very difficult, but you'd yeah. probably be able to ask a player at what point did you feel like you needed to come off and then establish some sort of baseline? I mean, it's a, yeah, I, I, I mean, guess there's lots of ways of doing it. Yes, it's going to be complicated data, but it's going to be <laughs> that's the sort of thing people will look at. So for off the top of my head, for example, they currently track distance run and distance run at high speeds. So, you know, maybe you ran 6.2 kilometers and 1.8 of it was at high speed. Imagine you could now start looking at head impacts per distance run. So you had every 220 meters of running, you had a head impact. That's going to be a measure of like your tackle efficiency. Because mm. what you want is you'd want the player to run less before each tackle, maybe. Yeah. You'd start to get like you start to get the density of head impacts per meter run or meters per head impact or something like that. Yeah. You could probably start to use quite in, important and then and then on the injury side, there's already some data. There's a paper, I think it was by Seifert et al. in American football, where they did work out that your concussion risk goes up with accumulated head impacts. So an impact of X, if it's the first one, is less likely to cause a concussion than the same impact when it's the eighth one. Makes sense, right? Yeah. So so you, you can almost say, well, okay, maybe 90 Gs is almost certainly a concussion, but maybe 360s equals a 90. Maybe 650s equals 360s equals a 90. And in time... It's never going to be that precise, by the way, because there's too much. There's individual variability, there's location, there's, as I said earlier, like, could you see it coming and anticipate the impact? Mm. But I do think that in time, we'll get more precise about understanding that. And, and rugby, by virtue of this mandate into the HIA protocol, we will have in the next two years, we'll have 500,000 impacts. Hmm. If, every, if every player wore this thing, we'd have a million impacts within four years. Wow, we'd have and we'd have seven, eight hundred concussions among those million impacts. So we can do things that no no one else has even thought to ask because we have such a high volume of people playing the sport. You know, we'll generate unbelievable data as a consequence. So there's loads of really cool opportunities. And then the other, and then just one last one is, you know, like there's all this talk about head impacts cause cognitive decline and later in life consequences. So now we're thinking twenty years from now. Imagine a fifty-two year old rugby player twenty years from now who well, 30 years from now, who could look back at exactly how many head impacts they had and try and we can try and relate later in life consequences to head impacts in the course of life instead of guessing and estimating based on how many concussions you remember having. There's so much yeah. power in measuring this stuff and that's why it's exciting. It gives, it gives us the opportunity to do unbelievable things, I think. 
I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we talked a little bit about sports like boxing and um, extreme fighting and cage fighting and those sort of things. There's not particularly a lot of concern around the long-term effects of impacts there, but right. this could be used potentially for that because they do wear mouth guards in that situation. So you, you can imagine that this technology might find its way into other sports as a result of what you guys are doing. You'd think, and there are other contact sports. I know like in the NFL, for instance, they use the helmeted one. I don't yeah. think the players, I don't think they can get the players buy in to put the mouth guards in enough people, but the helmet that they can use. Mm-hmm. Uh, rugby league, Australian league, boxing and so on is interesting because I don't know whether they want to know. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> you can do, Could be the end now. of the sport. Yeah, could be that's the end the of the sport. Now, yeah. Like, yeah. now we have this tech that actually can quite easily measure it. Mm. So now the question is, do you want to measure it? And so it's a, it's now it's a will, not a way. Yeah. You have the will. And I think what Rugby is saying is we have the will and we've got the way. And so we're going to do it. And once once you know you can measure it and you can measure it, then should you? Of course, I think, yes, you should. So that's what we're doing. Whether other sports adopt the same mentality remains to be seen. Yeah. I mean, no, there's not necessarily a will there at all. I mean, I just think that, they, I mean, I'm going to ask you a question just around what you actually measure. But before you do that, I, I just had a thought, you know, that, I always love to think about the application for these things down the line. I think about Bluetooth technology and you think you've got things like bone conductor technology. Now, if you put headphones on, you can actually listen to music when you're riding along. And I think if you could add that into the mouthpiece, could you talk to the players through their <laughs> mouth guards? <laughs> Maybe. While they're playing, you probably could. <laughs> so you could you potentially that, communicate right? with players on the field via Bluetooth. Um, but anyway. We'll, maybe somebody will think about that one day. There's no reason so why not, I reckon, you know. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it should, could work. If, especially if you start integrating smart sensors. Mm. Like you could, yeah, you know, once they can start talking to one another, imagine yeah. GPS talking to, yeah, there's, there's loads of things like that. I mean, the next yeah. situation I'd like to see is a, blue, is a mouth card that lights up after a big impact. Oh, okay. <laughs> So that you don't it's like something it. from a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> Just all these people the with glowing time, mouths. So the next time the blokes pack down in a scrum and they grin at each other in the front row and one of them is bright red, you say, hang on a moment. That's not, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but it'll be funny. He's, he's going off soon. Yes. <laughs> you off. Then the referee could send a player for the screen instead of waiting for the doctor. Because there is yeah. one thing at the moment is you need you need them you need the mouth guard to talk to an app and then you need the app to upload it to a cloud. So if you had a Wi-Fi issue, for instance, in the stadium, or if you had a if you had a synchronization problem, there could be a delay, you know? And so sure. at the very worst, you'd get it at half time because then all the players come in and you can have them in the change room and you know they're very close proximity and so on. So as as the tech improves, that becomes less of a factor. But at the moment, there might be an impact in the 30-second minutes and you only pick it up at half time. So it's not oh. perfect. But yeah. it's better than not picking it up at all. So, we, yeah, we kind of said worst-case scenario is it gets picked up at halftime or end of the match. But so data, time, data engineers and, and electronic specialists are uh, f- looking like they've got solid careers if they were involved in rugby at some point because it's, yeah, it sounds yeah, like yeah, that's I the way it's so. going. And, 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 like, the hope is that what happens now is that other manufacturers of mouth guards get on board and they say, we're going to get into this now as well. And what that does is it improves the quality, it drives the cost down, so yeah, I think I think there's that's what happened certainly with GPS units back in the day. Mm-hmm. It was you had your first mover, then everyone else caught up, and then the market sort of competes against itself, and the end user is the beneficiary. So I, I hope that that also ends up being the case. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's so fascinating because like mm-hmm. legit in five years time, we'll probably look back and saying, "Cheap as these were basic days." 
Mm. But it's at this moment right now, this feels like so novel and innovative that it's really exciting, I think. Yeah. So just, I mean, it's a question I probably should have asked you right at the start, but it's worth sort of finishing off this topic with this. What are you measuring? You talked about rotational force versus impact. Mm. So two questions. First, yeah, what are you measuring? First, and then second of all, why is head acceleration a measure of potential concussion? Yeah, so what you are measuring is um, literally the acceleration of the head. I mean, that's what they do. So anytime the head moves, there's an acceleration of the head. You know, force equals mass times acceleration. So the moment there's any force applied, and that can be direct, as in I get hit on the head, boxer, or a tackle, a high tackle. And it can also be indirect. So, for instance, I get hit in the body and my head snaps forward in response. So that's called inertial head load. So literally any movement, uh, whether it's evasive, like a Cheslin Colby sidestep causes head acceleration, yeah. uh, a bracing impact, any inertial mo motion, blunt force contact. If the head moves, the IMG measures it, right? Right. It measures it in two planes, the linear and rotational. The reason those matter. So, so, in other words, linear, in other words, back and forth, and rotational versus how the head might twist. Exactly. Yeah, exactly okay. that. And those are important because, for different reasons, they are implicated in concussion. So, for example, the rotational one is implicated as causing the strain. I think we spoke once on the podcast of like how the head basically moves in, sorry, the brain moves inside the skull. And if you have excessive rotation, then it causes like shearing forces inside. Makes sense, right? Right. Yeah. Because like it's basically like having a, a water sachet inside a bowling ball. And if you move Correct. the bowling ball, the water sachet moves inside. Is that yeah, that's yeah. a fair way to look at the brain? Yeah. Great, great analogy. Yeah, exactly. And so that's so that's what's happening with those rotational ones. And then the linear ones are implicated in a slightly different mechanism of concussion. So you measure those because they are they are literally the triggering event for a concuss concussive event is acceleration of the head, which causes that shearing and damage to the, the the brain structure. So yeah, that's that's what's being measured. Now there are there are clever ways of taking those two metrics and and working with them. So for instance, do you measure the peak acceleration, the highest linear and rotational? That's what we've done so far. That's what we've used as our flare. Um, there are other things you can do. You can look at how quickly the acceleration happens, like the rate of change of acceleration, which kind of accounts for the time over which it happened as well as the peak. And then you can try and integrate them. We were, we were chatting to some engineers who work in the NFL group doing this, and they've also done some really good work. They talk about having six or seven different metrics that they can take and work out. So I think in time, with enough data points, you'll be able to give this to these clever guys and they'll be able to say, right, we've improved the predictive capacity from 25% to 45% by looking at a combination of things instead of one or two at a time, you know? Yeah. All right. So, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i sorry to labor the point because it is quite interesting to kind of get into the weeds of this. So when you're talking about what the head doesn't, what the head doesn't side is concussion then only caused by this acceleration of the brain inside the, the the brain inside the skull, or is if somebody like hits me on the front or somebody punches me in my head, it, it's not the impact of the punch; it's the acceleration of the head which causes a concussion. Am I is that a, is that is that right? Or yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, that's a mechanistic thing that I must be honest; I'm not hundred percent down with. Mm. But, but yes, it's but the, the blunt force on the outside is a risk to your skull. Mm. That's why cyclists wear a helmet, right? It's because you don't mm. want to get that skull fracture. And you can obviously, that blunt force can be transmitted directly down, and then you get hematomas, and you, you end up with 
what you read about skiing accidents, guy hits a head on a rock, like um Schumacher, for instance, you know, Michael yeah. Schumacher. That's not quite the same as a concussion, but it's that's literally brain damage caused by blunt force trauma. But the acceleration, and that's why you get whiplash uh concussions, because you don't need there to be direct impact. But a lot of the time the direct impact causes the acceleration secondary to it, and then that's what causes the actual yeah. underlying damage to the to the structure, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because it's an important definition to understand that concussion is used, as you just said, it's the you can have no impact but still have concussion. Whereas I think my thoughts always were you had to have a concussion was the result of an impact, but it doesn't, ha- and it is a result of an impact, but not always on the head. No, is, exactly. And no, let me yeah. so let me just to bail myself out, read, read to you from a paper. This is Rouse <laughs> and this is Stephen Rouse and et al. 2013. And this was one where they were looking at brain injury prediction, assessing the probability of concussion using linear and rotational head acceleration. That's what I said to you earlier. Is like using head acceleration to try and predict concussion is not new. This is a decade old now. What's new in sport is using it as a policy to try and signal for someone who needs a screen, which is I think what rugby is doing to innovate. This basically is linear acceleration-based brain injury is thought to result from a transient intracranial pressure gradient. So you get a hit on the head. There's a very short-lived pressure that's created inside the skull, and that causes the damage, the injury. Mm-hmm. And then it goes on, while rotational acceleration-based brain injury is thought to result from a strain response. And so that's effectively the, the differently moving brain inside the skull, causing like basically like shearing forces and mm-hmm. so on inside the skull. Make sense, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. an important differentiation. Yeah, well, there yeah. we have it. That's why. So, and so, so, sorry. And again, this is the fourth time I'm saying this, just because I know I have <laughs> head acceleration will never predict with good accuracy concussion. It might be better than chance once you get to those really high magnitudes. You know, like you can say with a reasonable degree of confidence that that's going to be a concussion. But anyone who wants to use it for to diagnose them is way overreaching. But what yeah. we do think we can do is we can use it as a flare to put more people in front of, of doctors. And you know what else might happen is you might have that single flare is 70 and 4,000 for men, 55, 4,000 for women. But maybe in time you start realizing that if the players had three at 55, they also need to be seen on the Monday after the game. You know, yeah. Just check in. How are you? We noticed that you've had a few big ones. They weren't mm. big enough to take you off the field, but there's, but if you don't know it, you'll never know to ask about it. And that's what that's what this is about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, just just timings wise, I mean, when when is it rolling out? When are we going to see this in the game? Well, as I said, you saw it now. The last weekend was the first weekend of the WXV two and three. This mm. this literally this morning, and as we talk right now, the uh, second match in WXV one is being played. So, those are the three competitions using it. Any competition that starts after the first of January will have it in it. So, for example, the Japanese league starts. The Six Nations in February will be a big competition where it's used. So we'll have many eyes on that. Super Rugby, it won't be used in the URC, the French Top 14 or the Premiership now because the competitions have already begun. But when they start in September next year, they'll be used then. So anything starting after next year, 1st of Jan, is where it's going to be used. Hmm. And then we just <laughs> then we just hope we get compliance. You know, like Already it's been discovered that some players will take the mouth guard and put it in their sock. No, the mm. thing about that is, and maybe the platform <laughs> knows, is that we know when it's not on the tooth because the technology allows you to identify. It's got a thing called a proximity sensor. And so you actually know when it's on the tooth. Mm. 
And so players will use it. They'll have it in their sock and they'll come off for the screen. So I've used my mouth guard. We say, no, 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 you actually haven't. You know, we, we, we'll be wise to that. I mean, I, I, there's, I mean, there's obviously lots of questions because some players will like certain kinds of mouth guards where that they feel and because there are so many different brands. So how those mouth guards are fitted in the mouth and all that sort of thing. It's it's uh, logistically quite a tough task, I'd imagine, rolling this out. Yeah, it is. And I mean, you want to respect that people have those preferences. But at the same mm. time, remember in cycling, guys used to ride without helmets. And then they said yeah. you could wear helmets and everyone had a fuss about that. They weren't happy. Sure. Now it's kind of just done. And if you didn't have one, people would look at you funny. I hope it goes like that. I think mm. I think part of it is legit concerns about fit. You know, the first version of the mouth guard was a little bit thicker because it had to accommodate the accelerometer chip. Because basically mm. it's a normal mouth guard with a chip inserted into it. Yeah. So you could, in theory, you could adapt any mouth guard. But, but in the beginning, before that chip reduced in size, the mouth guard was thicker in order to fit it. The new versions now, I think, are much better. And in fact, the the version two, I think it's two point oh now, is indistinguishable from a mouth guard without a chip. So, I I don't think that that particular objection has any weight anymore. And so now you're just dealing with personal preferences and superstitions, maybe, and that sort of thing. But we will have mm. to listen to the players and try and accommodate those requests. I think, yeah, like it, I know that in the last few months the main mouth guard provider has accommodated the chips. So I, I see, I see the barriers getting lower and lower is the point I'm trying to make. And, and I keep on asking, saying final question, but final question. If, if, if um, Johnny's dad, who's playing in high school rugby first team or whatever, can he purchase one of those buy the app and then monitor his kid on weekend? Yeah, he can. And, and in fact, if I'm a mouth guard manufacturer, I'm looking at that community market. If mm. I can get a cheaper version, because you see these mouth guards now are custom fitted. The, the players go for scans. And like this is the this is the length to which World Rugby is going, is it's oh. it's sending teams out, dental teams, to all the international players to actually do these 3D scans on them. So there's literally like a team of people traveling the rugby world at the moment, scanning players' teeth. And then <laughs> what you get is you get like a custom fitted mouth guard. The, the cheaper option is something called boil and bite, which is kind of like what you probably know from your kids if you're listening to this. Those, those also have instruments in them. They're not quite as accurate yet, but the, the companies are working on making them as accurate. And if those, if those can be made at reasonable cost and with reasonable accuracy, then I think this becomes quite a big part of the community game in the next three or four years as well. Mm. And again, it's not going to be a case of like you can play the game, download your stats and say, I just took a hit of 60 Gs. I must be concussed. It's never going to be that. But I think it gives the community player the opportunity to track head impacts in a way that gives them power through information. And then mm. it's up to the sport and the researchers, I suppose, like myself, to try and explain what that 60 G impact actually means. Yeah, for sure. Well, we've almost run out of time to discussing just the mouth cards, but uh, let's just touch briefly. I mean, you've been there over the last couple of weeks. You're going to be there for the remainder of the tournament. Just looking at some of the tournament stats, some amazing stats. And, and I look at these things like most tries, most conversions, and things like most clean breaks. We've got most points all happening in terms of the the, the players. They've looked at all the stats. France have done really, really well. Of course, losing last week to South Africa. The most amazing thing about this game that I've noticed having watched a few games and you, you can probably hypothesize whether I'm right or wrong. It, it seems that there are less penalties than in the past. 
that the game is more entertaining than it, than I remember it being in previous World Cups and in previous games, for that matter. And there is a level of excitement around this World Cup, which seems to have raised the bar in terms of what people, how people are engaging with it. And it might just be my environment and the people I'm talking to, but just watching the game as a spectator, as a fan, it feels like we have a better quality, more entertaining version of rugby. Am, am I right? And if so, any ideas why? Maybe it's because you've listened to the Science of Sport podcast for the last three <laughs> weeks when we've discussed rugby. Now you have insights you didn't have, and it's kind of like true. gotten you true. a little bit addicted to it. But but I, I think that – so let me start off by saying I went to both quarterfinals in Paris last weekend, and this Friday night was New Zealand-Ireland. Mm. It might be the best atmosphere I'd ever experienced in a rugby match for 24 hours. And then Saturday night was just something else. I can't, never, the first 15 minutes of that South Africa-France game, when they rumbled us in a in a rolling mall and then they were 7-0 up and then they nearly scored a try over in the in the far corner and Etzebeth stuck his huge paw out and knocked it. If you're French, you think forwards. If you're not, you think sideways and backwards. <laughs> did, you, did you watch all that? Yes. The the whistling and the jeering in that stadium when the referee didn't give a penalty try and a yellow card for that was terrifying. Yeah. Never, it was the most amazing atmosphere I've ever experienced in sport. And terrifying was, in terms of just the pure volume of it. The intensity of the passion in that stadium. I've never in my life experienced sport like it. Hmm. I mean, amazing. Not ter- like not legitimately scary, but like just mm. the 80,000 people doing one thing. Unbelievable. And that's how it's been. Like it was just, and then it stayed that way to the very end. The, the tension in that stadium, that last, remember France were on their own sort of 10 meter line in, on their own trial line, basically with a scrum. And then they got out. There was a, almost a line break down the right-hand side. Then there was a nearly a line break down the left-hand side. And then it was phase after phase within kickable penalty distance. Like, is it mm-hmm. going to be a penalty? Is there going to be a line break? You could see South Africa, like, trying to choose when you go in for the steal to win penalty of their own. And so it was just the most engrossing thing I've ever done in sport. It was honestly like the pinnacle of sport that I've experienced. Yeah. And I think, I mean, mm. yeah, I mean, obviously it helps to win. Like, you know, we're happy now South Africa. Yeah. In the semis, but even without that, it was just the most incredible like thing. And I think, I think it shows like rugby in France is unbelievably healthy. Mm. You can go into a pub here, not a pub, a, pubs many pubs you can go into a restaurant here a french restaurant on game night and there are 50 people watching the sport and it's like leanne's here and she said like it's amazing like young teenage girls like absolutely engrossed in the rugby you don't see yeah. that anywhere in the world like this is a this is rugby country it's amazing really because everywhere else <laughs> if you if you only read english twitter you'd think the sport is dying because all they do is whine yeah yeah, but like yeah. in this country, like it's just incredible. Like the records have been broken for viewership, for attendance. Like it's just fan parks have been packed. It's been a, really, I think, an amazing tournament for rugby. So, so good. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, the most tries is Damien Pinard, um, Pinot, who's uh, got six tries, the most points, the most conversions, Thomas Ramos. And uh, he's got the most points, Thomas Ramos, the French player. And uh, most clean breaks, Damien Pinot as well, 13 clean breaks. And then interesting to see like Fiji and all those sort of countries also doing very well. The top five players at the moment in terms of points, Ramos, Johnny Sexton, Damien McKenzie, um, Argentinians in there as well, Buffelli and uh, Matsuda, the Japanese player. So 
of the semi-finalists, they're actually not doing very well in terms of the overall stats, which is interesting because France, to some extent, and being a South African supporter, obviously I'm happy with the result. But I do think that France played an outstanding game last week and are actually quite unlucky to, to, to lose that. And they, they certainly deserved, if they got through, to be in that semi-final, even though they just had a bit of bad luck against them to some extent. Yeah, if you could change one thing about this tournament, last week would have been semi-finals. <laughs> mm. And they're like, yes, just make it happen that way because they were, they were amazing. Like the the, the it was the top four teams, you know. Yeah. And that, people have said so much about the draw, which has done three years out and creates that possibility. So it's a real shame. And for the sake of the tournament, actually, for France to go out is a big blow because the vibe in Paris will definitely be lower. And Ireland had so many fans here, and it was you go to the public areas before the match where everyone's waiting to get on trains and they go to dinners and so on before. The Irish fans are a great value. So it was a real loss for the tournament to lose them. Mm. The one thing about those stats you have to remember is that they're skewed a lot by one or two matches where you get minnows, you know, like uh, mm. Peno, I know, has got eight tries, but like one of the English players caught five in one match, you know, against mm. Chile. And so you do get these skewed stats. And then it's only when you start throwing the sort of top six to eight together at once that you really get a good picture of who's who and what's who's got what, you know. Which is, I think, what last weekend showed. And actually, the other the other quarterfinals are also really good games. The Fiji Fiji match went down to the last possession as well. Fiji had the ball. Mm-hmm. Okay, they needed a converted try to win it, so it was a little bit further out of reach than say it was for France and Ireland. But I mean, it's it's crazy to think like one thing changes that. You know, Ireland had a try. Well, it wasn't a try. They had a, a ball held up over the try line by Geordie Barrett's leg. Mm. Missed, they missed a penalty by Sexton, which would have got them in drop goal range. They had an opportunity for a drop goal. They took line out options instead of kick. Like you have so many regrets in those close matches, so many what ifs, you know? <laughs> well, you need a bit of luck at the end of the day, don't you? I mean, it's not just about form. Luck, I think, does play some element. You've just got to get the rubber, the green on the odd occasion. Yeah, a little bit. Eh? And then, you know, yeah. and the problem is when it comes to stats specifically, is that then people people read into statistics what the result allows them to. Mm. They don't do it independent of the results. I'll give you the one example is one of the big things now as you go into semis and finals is like managing your load on your players. And so there's a good account in Twitter called, it's it's at, I uh, pulled this up earlier, at rpetty80. It's a guy called Russ Petty who posts rugby stats. And he's been documenting minutes played in the tournament. And the day before the quarterfinals showed that the Irish had had by far the most minutes for their starting 15. So oh, then you look at okay. that and you say, like, geez, I wonder if fatigue is going to start to become a factor here. And then, of course, when they lose the game, everyone says, ah, you know, they did look a bit tired in the last 15 minutes. <laughs> if they'd won the game, they wouldn't have looked tired. And the difference, yeah. the difference between winning and losing a game is having a try held up over the, uh, over the line, you know? So... We editorialize a lot and say, oh. and now it's the same. South Africa picked an unchanged team for the semi-final. If they mm. lose, they say, oh, you see, you should have changed his squad up. You know, it's too hard to play back-to-back games at that level. If mm. they don't lose, they'll say inspired selection by the coaches. <laughs> so exactly. so stats, are, stats are whatever you want them to be, depending on the outcome. <laughs>
They're one of the most interesting ones uh, on that. And if you want to have a look at some of the stats, because they really are good to look at, rugbyworldcup.com, just type in stats. There's actually a page which shows lots of different stats, and they really are quite interesting to look at. But one of the interesting ones, and he talked about the overall impact of a game, Wales has got the most tackles made at 837, Japan second, and South Africa, South Africa third with 656. So Wales had, has made the most tackles by some distance yeah, over the yeah. rest of the squads. Um, and then South Africa third. So you'd say, well, okay, if South Africa have made a lot of tackles, then is there not that accumulative fatigue as a result of that? I mean, I suppose it's lots of hypotheses around that. But yeah, exactly. it's, uh, sometimes stats do tell a story that you could probably uh, uh, account yeah. for stuff at the end, you know? The other, one, the other one I saw after those quarterfinals is that all four quarterfinals were won by the team that kicked more, passed less, and tackled more often. Yes. Right? So as you, if you kick more, you passed less, and you mm. tackled more, you were going to win the, every, every one of them, right? But again, three of those quarterfinals could have been won by the other team. So yes. it, could have, it could have been sitting out. And I don't think it's because of those three things. So you sort of, you make mm. that mistake. I, I've heard it given a name, and I forget it now, where you fit the facts to the theory, not the theory to the facts. Yes. So, yeah. so that is, that's definitely in play. But it's interesting. Like, I watch the games now, and it's not like it was new, but having heard John Dobson's insights, remember about Middle Earth, kick the ball <laughs> when you're in Middle Earth because you don't want to get caught there. You can tell who's kicking the ball out of Middle Earth because they're the ones who then end up making more tackles. And I reckon, I, no, it wouldn't be half, but like a big proportion of South Africa's tackles were made in that one game against France because it was just wave after wave. It was unbelievable. It was, the, it was just one yeah. battering after the next that we took from them in attack. Yeah, so that's... Yeah. Uh, Anyway, stats always always good value. Yeah, interpreting. And I, I think and how you interpret them is very critical because as a if you're a coach or a player or a strategist around tactical maneuvers on the game, it's so easy to mis and misinterpret stats, I imagine, because yeah. you've got to figure out what's what stats mean something and what stats don't. Exactly. And so I think the coaches will all have slightly different variations in what they value, but certainly like errors made is the, the big one. Like how many times did you mm. concede a line break? Uh, how many missed tackles, how many missed kicks to touch, how many turnovers and penalties conceded. Like conceding more penalties than your opponent is is a very strong predictor of losing. Mm-hmm. And so when you watch, if, if you get a 13-8 penalty count, that five penalty difference is really hard to overcome when teams are as close as they are. And that's why even, even New Zealand and South Africa now, like I see the bookies have them heavy favorites for this weekend. We'd be nervous about that because... Two penalty decisions either way, two bad decisions by players that can see penalties, that can shift close matches enough that all of a sudden you're three points down with 15 to go and now you're in a desperate situation. So, yeah, the game the game is fragile at the at the competitive level, which is why it's been such a good World Cup. You know? yeah. The one, one thing on your penalty question is World Rugby at the end of the tournament brings out a report mm-hmm. where you'll be able to see penalties, line-outs, scrims, etc., I don't have those stats on me right now. I don't know about penalties, but definitely foul play penalties are down. Okay. So when you watch, and, and especially in, interestingly in the biggest games, like France, New Zealand opening game, there was a yellow card for a tackle in the air. No high tackles, no head contacts, nothing like that. There were no concussions in that game either. Uh, South Africa, Scotland, South Africa, Ireland, um, Wales, Australia, at a couple. So that's that's maybe the one exception. What were some of the other big games? 
South Africa, France, New Zealand, Ireland, not a single head injury concussion in that in those games. There were a couple of HIAs, but no head injuries and only the one yellow card. So so what has been encouraging is that the biggest games with the most pressure and the most physicality have been played without red card controversies so far. I hope I haven't jinxed that with four to go, but geez, I hope not. But um, it does feel to me that at this level of the game, the players are tackling better and not conceding the, the cards like they used to do. Mm. So potentially my, my, my theories about the game being better actually in practice, there is some stats to, to say that there is the game is slightly better to watch because there isn't a lot of stop start with penalties. Yeah, it could be, and certainly not with the red cards and stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, was going to say, there's yeah. only been two. There's only been yeah. There's only one player I think that's got two red cards, and that was um. Yeah, in fact, one player's only got one red card, and that's uh. It's sorry, five players have got red cards so far according to the stats here. Yeah, and like the um, where was I going with that? They've also made an attempt to speed the game up. You know, they use that bunker system now, where mm. the on the field doesn't give the red card. They give a yellow, and then someone in a in a video room says yeah. more time. I don't know yeah. that that's worked as well as it could have done. Um, I think it alienated a lot of fans who now no longer know why a decision was reached. And mm. so, for the sake of transparency, I'm not a hundred percent sure that that's worked. It was supposed mm. to be a, an attempt to be more transparent because what you could do is you could allow a person away from the pressure of the field and time to look at the video, look at four or five different angles, look at it in slow motion, real speed, and use the process more systematically. And then once it was reached, explain that process through the TV. And then let's say, mm. the reason this player is not coming back with a red card is because of da-da-da, or they are coming back because of X, Y, Z. And I don't think we've done that very well. So if there's one learning from this tournament, I think it's that needs to be improved. If it's going to stay, it needs mm. to be improved. But what it has done well is it sped the game up. Yeah, and, and as I'm, I'm, I've kind of made a mistake in one of our earlier podcasts building up to this, saying that we should have something on the screen which indicates why a penalty has happened, and we know that does actually happen, yeah. but it it isn't it isn't as obvious a lot of the time, and it doesn't happen every time. As you say, the more you can explain that sort of thing to the fan, I think it makes a huge difference to the the understanding of the game and therefore their enjoyment of the game to some extent. So there is, you know, it works, you know, you know it works really well is in cricket when there's an LBW appeal. Yes. Because nobody watching it is left in any doubt at all as to what happened and how it was reached. Because they'll show you very systematically, show me the front foot, show me mm. where did the ball pitch, show me with a line, show me snickometer to see if there was an edge, and then yeah. show me the ball tracking so I can see what goes. And it's one, two, three, four. And if it's and if it's red, 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 you're out. If it's red, red, green, you're in. You know what I mean? Like yes. it's really clean. And, yeah. and like when the when the bunker thing was first proposed, that was kind of the proposal was that it was going to be it was going to be shown in a graphic like that you know like that was the thinking was that you could do it so that every single decision became an opportunity to educate you know mm. that's mm. where i don't think that it's been i don't think it's been done as well as it might have been because again you're still going to always have disagreements but if you're transparent then everyone understands and, and understanding means learning and you you just repeat over and over and over and eventually people will get it so that's yeah. that's been a if there's been a disappointment on the welfare side, I'd say it's that. There've been some, there've been some decisions that I just I can't, I don't understand how they reach them, and the bunkers meant that no one does. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I suppose that's, I mean, human interpretation of everything is never going to be a perfect science at the end of the day, is it? Even no. even a, bank, bun, a bunch of experts in a bunker are always not necessarily going to make decisions that you agree with, especially all if it's your team reason. it's against. Right. All the more reason, though, to explain exactly how those humans yeah. work, in my opinion. For sure. For sure. So, yeah, for that's, sure. that's where we are. Um, as for the semis, I don't know when this podcast goes out. I don't know if we make oh, it. We'll, yeah, we'll be before the semis. So we'll be out. We'll be setting it out uh, today, which if you're listening to us today is Friday, and then the semis happening tomorrow. So uh, we'll we we'll, should be able to get that. But of course, the discussion around the uh, accelerometers in the mouth gods will be something people are talking about for a while, I imagine. Yeah, because I tell you, if I was both New Zealand and South Africa, what would worry me is that you have to now produce. Not, I don't think you have to be quite as good as you were last week to beat France and Ireland, respectively. Mm. To pick players up after that and then try and get them up again mentally, less than physically, it's really hard. I remember when I was with the South African Sevens team, if we had an unbelievable quarterfinal or semifinal, we used to get nervous. Mm. I said, Shit, how are we going to repeat that? There's only one way you can go. You can't, yeah. you can't stay there. And you see it often, actually, in football and tennis and all sorts of like unbelievably good performances are very often followed by mediocre ones because psychologically it's just so difficult to to re rebound you know yeah i'd be very nervous if i was england and uh, new zealand and south africa the only thing is they've got such high caliber players that they should be able to get them ready for it but that's why these semis are not as one-sided as i think many expect them to be well, for those of you listening to the podcast after the semifinals, be able to tell us whether we were right or wrong about that. Yeah, <laughs> but it's something yeah. to watch out for, for sure, for sure. But I still think, like, you know, South Africa, France last week, you play that game 10 times, each side mm. wins five. Yeah, 100%. New Zealand, England, uh, Ireland, I think the same, 5-5. Five, five. If it's in New Zealand, it's 6-4. If it's in Ireland, it's 4-6, maybe 7-3, because I actually think Ireland is better than New Zealand as a team at the moment. Mm-hmm. England, England, South Africa, maybe is like a 7-3, and New Zealand, Argentina is an 8-2, but the context makes it closer to 6-4, 5-5 even, you know? So that's why these are these are not going to be as easy as I think many people expect them to be. Are you going to be in the stadium for the two semis? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to both. So that should Fantastic. be good. I look forward to hearing your uh, views next week when we chat to you, because I think it'd be interesting just to hear the atmosphere there and just great great um, privilege i'm sure for you to be able to be part of that and uh, as you describe those atmospheres i mean there's the crowd maybe because there's so many not so many frenchmen there but they won't it won't be quite as loud but um hopefully it will be i mean there seems to be a lot of passion around this world cup more than a ever english, a lot of english people traveling yeah. trains and planes this week so that's true I a lot of flights like a, like ryan has done a good business this week yeah exactly so it'll feel it'll feel like home ground for them yeah like, well there's i couldn't believe how many south africans there were here <laughs> Tell you what, the funny side is seeing South Africans navigate the Champs Elysees on rental bicycles. Well, they've banned the scooters, haven't they now? And you can't yes. wear scooters, but you can ride a bike now in, in Paris. Yeah, so, the other day we were walking on the Champs Elysees on a Saturday morning, actually. And it was mm. super entertaining watching. And you could see them because they were in the Springbok gear on the line bicycles, barreling <laughs> into, into these like six lane intersections without a clue about what's coming from the left and right. <laughs> And then you just hear choice Afrikaans words coming out from the <laughs> So there's a lot of South Africans here, so it should be fun. should be good. Yeah. Mm. Good stuff. Professor Rostaker, thanks very much for your time. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. 
Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts.